Welcome back to the Dirt Show. As you can see from the background, I'm back in New York, back from a month in Israel, having met just about everybody I wanted to meet, the president, the prime minister, the head of the Air Force, the head of intelligence, the head of everything, and just lots of nice people, people on the street. I asked directions from somebody. It turned out he was a Palestinian, and we spent 20 minutes talking about the issue. And then I met a woman who was from the Philippines, and we talked about that issue. Everybody's very garrulous and, and talkative and, and argumentative. And um, they say about Israel that it has um, 9 million prime ministers and 9 million generals. Everybody has an opinion on everything. It's a very vibrant uh, place, um, moving now more to the right. It was uh, back in 2000, 2001, it was moving to the left, the pendulum swings, doesn't America uh, move to the right under Trump, move to the left under Biden. That's the nature of uh, democracy. Happy Hanukkah to those who celebrate Hanukkah. Merry, early Merry Christmas to those who uh, celebrate Christmas and any other holidays that you uh, what that you celebrate. I'm one of these people, by the way. There are some people who say you should say happy holiday. No, no. I'm really happy to wish people a Merry Christmas. And I'm very happy to be wished a, a, a happy a happy Hanukkah. And of course, there are many people who celebrate both Christmas and Hanukkah together. There are so many um, marriages involving Jews and Christians, or now even increasingly in Israel, Jews and Muslims. So let's all celebrate all the holidays together. Hanukkah is the holiday of lights. The, the miracle of Hanukkah is that um, one day's worth of oil was enough to light the candles for, for eight days. So let everybody have uh, light in their lives and joy in their lives and, and Merry Christmas. Um, we, we have a tradition in our family of there's a Jewish song that, uh, that goes, Ma and then we always add, because there are Christians in the family, and Santa came down the chimney. So, you know, we get we cover both bases, um, and then you know we do the real blessings uh, on the on the Hanukkah menorah. I use my father's old Hanukkah menorah, probably is a hundred years old or something close to that. I like I like tradition. Speaking of tradition, today I'm going to talk about the Constitution and how the January sixth Committee of Congress violated it in three different ways by referring Donald Trump and others to the Justice Department for criminal prosecution. You might say, what's the harm? Uh, Justice Department can either ignore it or accept it. There's a lot of harm. There's a lot of harm. Um, when a committee of Congress takes a vote, an official vote, to refer a case for criminal prosecution to the Justice Department, that violates the Constitution at least three different ways. Let's start at the beginning. Article one of the Constitution provides for limited powers, and we're a Constitution of limited powers. Um, unlike some other governments, um, the branches of government don't have powers unless they have been allocated to them by the Constitution. So let's start with Article one. All legislative powers, legislative powers, here and granted shall be vested in Congress of the United States. So Congress has only legislative powers. It does not have prosecutorial authority. 
It doesn't have authority to name specific individuals and to refer them to the Justice Department. That's ultra-virus. That's beyond the power of Congress. I challenge anybody to show me anything in this Constitution which explicitly or even implicitly gives Congress the power to refer cases of individuals for prosecution. Congress has the power to legislate. That is to have broad legislation. You can have legislation making certain acts a crime, but you can't say that so-and-so is guilty of that crime. That's up to a grand jury. That's up to uh, the attorney general, the Justice Department, the executive branch of the government. The judiciary plays a role in it. Also, through the grand jury, the one branch of government that plays no role in prosecution except to define general crimes is the legislative branch. And in case that's not clear from Article 1, uh, Section 1 of the Constitution, it becomes even clearer when you look at Section 9 of the Constitution. People forget about the Constitution one thing. The Constitution is not a grant of power. It's a limitation on authority of government. It sets up checks and balances, separation of powers. There are only two rights contained within the body of the Constitution. I'm not talking about the Bill of Rights now. That came later. Two rights contained within the body of the Constitution. I'll read them to you. No bill of attainder or ex post facto, facto law shall be passed. Those are only two. And they're both limitations on Congress. You can't have bills of attainder. Now, what's a bill of attainder? It's interesting. When I was the editor-in-chief of the Yale Law Journal, we had a brilliant article submitted by my dear friend, the late John Hart Ely, on bill of attainders, and I was the editor. We spent a lot of time together on that, and and John proved beyond any doubt it's become accepted today by scholars, except, of course, scholars ignore what's been accepted when it comes to Trump. But it was accepted by scholars that the function of the Bill of Attainder, in part, was to assure separation of powers and checks and balances, that it denies Congress the power to decide who is going to be prosecuted. That's what a Bill of Attainder is. A Bill of Attainder was a legislative act by Parliament saying King so-and-so is guilty of treason and shall be decapitated or hanged. That's what exactly the framers of our Constitution didn't want. They didn't want Parliament, in this case Congress, to decide who's guilty and who's not guilty of crimes. That violates the separation of powers. And so, under Article 3 of the Constitution, they gave judicial powers to a different branch of government. Article 2 gave executive powers to the president um, and, and prosecutorial powers to the attorney general via the, the, the president. So, so far we have two provisions that prohibit Congress from naming individuals and referring them for prosecution. Article one, beginning legislative powers, that's not a legislative power. And then section nine, the part that talks about bill of attainders, it is a bill of attainder, if not in literal terms, certainly in, in spirit. It certainly violates the spirit that says we separate our powers, and Congress doesn't have the power to name names. They did it during the McCarthy period, and we liberals, I was old enough to remember that, objected to it. No, Congress doesn't have the power to point fingers at individuals and say, you are a communist, you are a fellow traveler, you are a socialist. No, we, we argued against that. But today, of course, the same um, people on the left, some of the same liberals are arguing, of course Congress has that power if it's Donald Trump. 
if the person they're naming is Donald Trump, that trumps the Constitution. <clears throat> and whatever we said in the past, forget about it. This is Donald Trump. Don't you understand? It's different when it comes to Donald Trump. The Constitution doesn't apply to him. And of course, Donald Trump has added to that by himself saying that uh, because he felt the election of, of 2020 was um, fraudulent, that it's okay to ignore the Constitution. He kind of took that back, you know in a statement, but uh, it, it's it's there. And uh, that was certainly instinctively what he what he believed he was saying in the beginning. And then he, he pulled back on it. And thankfully, he did pull back on it. So the Constitution applies to everybody. It applies to Republicans. It applies to Democrats. And those two provisions of the Constitution, the uh, allocation of power to Congress to legislate and the prohibition on bills of attainder, clearly suggests that Congress does not have authority to allow a committee appointed by the majority leader of the House, uh, particularly one that consists only of anti-Trump people, to make a referral to the Justice Department. Uh, the Justice Department, if they were really courageous, they would not only put it in the wastebasket, which I think they will do, but they would rebuke um, Congress for taking away their authority. They're not going to do that. They're going to be very polite. They're going to send a letter saying, thank you. We appreciate that. We will read with great care your report and your referrals, and we will make our own decision. Of course, there's a special prosecutor. He's already making uh, decisions based on his uh, allegedly independent investigation. And so the idea of Congress becoming Budinsky's and interfering with that investigation and telling the special prosecutor, telling the Justice Department who they should prosecute is something that deserves a rebuke. Oh, you're going to get it from me. You're not going to get it from the Justice Department. So I am rebuking my former student um, and uh, others uh, in, in Congress um, who were on the committee and who ignored the Constitution and put partisanship before the rule of law and before the Constitution. You know, I'm talking about Jamie Raskin. You were in my class. You know, I defended your, your father when he was in, indicted for um, uh, anti-war demonstrations. Uh, um, and, and uh, you know, you were a good student. And, and I'm proud of, I contributed to your campaign. But you're wrong about this one. And, um, and you've been wrong about almost everything regarding Trump because you put politics before principle and you put part of politics and partisanship before the Constitution. And that's not what I taught you. Uh, that's not what you taught your students um, before you became a member of, of Congress. So I would hope you would get back to a principled defense of the Constitution, a principled stance on the rule of law. But I think that's probably hoping for um, too much. So that's two provisions of the Constitution that were violated. There's another provision that nobody has mentioned, but which clearly lends support to the claim that Congress has no power to refer uh, people for uh, criminal prosecution. And that's the 14th Amendment. The 14th Amendment in Section 3, it's a very interesting provision. It provides no person shall be, and then it goes on, a senator, congressman, president, any official of the United States, if you took an oath of office, um, and, um, and then engaged in insurrection or rebellion against the same, or given aid or comfort to the enemies. And then it says something very interesting. 
But Congress, made by a vote of two-thirds of each House, removes such disability. So Congress does have some authority, but it's very specified in Article 3 and then again in Article 5 of the 14th Amendment that they can actually do something specific, but it's the opposite. They can't prosecute. They can remove the disability by a, a two-thirds vote. That's very specific, and obviously it was intended to cover uh, people from the South who uh, engaged in, uh, in rebellion. Uh, Jefferson Davis uh, couldn't run for the Senate unless Congress, by a two-thirds vote, gave him that right back. It's interesting, the 14th Amendment provides no mechanism for uh, implementing this prohibition. Is it a vote of Congress? Uh, we don't know. Article uh, um, Section 5 of, the, of that same constitutional provision, the 14th Amendment, says Congress shall have the power to enforce by appropriate legislation the provisions of this article, which means the provisions of the entire 14th Amendment. But it's the exception that proves the rule here. There is a, a narrow exception for acts of insurrection or rebellion I believe the history shows clearly it was intended only to apply to the Civil War. It would not apply to January 6th. But even if it did apply to January 6th, you would have to do it under the 14th Amendment. And my understanding is that the referrals today were not done pursuant to the 14th Amendment. They were done pursuant to some claimed legislative authority to refer cases to the prosecution. Uh, I challenge you. I challenge you, Jamie. I challenge you, members of Congress. Uh, I challenge the chairman of the committee, point to, to a provision of the Constitution that allows um, Congress to vote. Remember, it wasn't just a referral by some member. It was a vote, a vote, an official vote of a committee of Congress to refer uh, specific individuals for a prosecution based on evidence that was taken by this committee. Now, let's remember who the committee was. It was a completely one-sided committee, consisted only of Democrats and two Republicans, one of whom became a Democrat or, or is becoming a Democrat and lost in the primary in the Republican Party, and the other of whom was quit Congress. So, you know, profile and courage, most profiles and courage are done by people who are no longer running for office or have lost. Um, so, what happened, if you remember, is that uh, the minority leader of the House proposed two people for the committee. And under the traditions, indeed, under the rules of the House, the Speaker doesn't have any authority to decide who should be the Republican members of the committee. But uh, Speaker Pelosi said, no, I'm not accepting these two people. They're too, they're loudmouths. They're going to talk too much. They're going to ask hard questions. That's exactly who you want on a committee of this kind, but uh, she vetoed it and said, no, I'm not going to accept that. And then foolishly, the Republican leadership said, all right, so we're not going to send anybody. We're going to, we're going to uh, cut our nose to spite our face. Uh, and therefore uh, the Republicans, that is the pro-Trump Republicans had nobody um, on the committee to represent their point of view, nobody to cross-examine, nobody to present witnesses. So it was a completely one-sided uh, report. And um, the conclusions uh, that uh, the committee came to at the end of days and days and days of hearing testimony, mostly televised in a lavish production, was what they started out with. 
not a single mind was changed. Uh, not a single bit of evidence had any impact on anybody. Uh, the members of the committee, both the Democrats and the, the two Erzatz Republicans, um, had a narrative. They knew what had happened before they took any evidence. And so they just allowed the evidence that they took on cross-examined to become a basis for their predetermined conclusions. Okay, they have the power to do that because that's in the aid of legislation. But naming specific individuals is not an aid of legislation, and it's not permissible under the Constitution of the United States. And so um, I think this is a bad day for the Constitution. I think it's a, a bad day for uh, the rule of law. Um, I don't think it's going to matter very much to, to Donald Trump. Um, he seems to thrive on being treated unfairly, and he uses that to solidify his base. And that's why it's, it's a lose-lose for those Democrats who want to make sure that Trump doesn't run again, but who care about the Constitution. I don't know how many of those there are left, but then it's a lose-lose because you're violating the Constitution. Uh, you're creating a terrible precedent that the Republicans will surely pick up when they take uh, control of the House um, and um, will exploit it the same way the Democrats did. So it's a bad day for the Constitution. I think it's also a bad day for the anti-Trump uh, people because I think Trump makes the most of this kind of thing. And, and you know, Americans basically have a sense of fairness. They understand an unfair process when they see it. And I can't imagine any neutral person in the middle um, who looks at this congressional hearing and these referrals and says to himself, wow, that's the American way. That's the way we ought to do things. That's the way, you know, uh, John Smith, whatever his name was, goes to Washington. Uh, that's, that's what we want. Uh, that's Daniel Webster. That's Abraham Lincoln. No, no, no. That's Joseph McCarthy. And uh, it's not. American, and it's not the right way, and it's not the rule of law, and it's not, most importantly, the system of checks and balances and separation of powers that are uniquely American. You know, we were the first constitution ever to have separation of powers. I just came back from Israel where there's a big fight about that. Israel has a parliamentary system, one house, one parliament, it's called the Knesset, 120 members, and they now want to vote to allow 61 members, simple majority, to overrule all Supreme Court decisions. I was on television. I wrote op-ed pieces. And I spoke to the prime minister. I spoke to the president. I spoke to academics, uh, very much coming out against that, uh, because I think that does interfere with separation of powers, even though it's a parliamentary system and checks and balances. You can still have checks and balances in a parliamentary system. England has it, and Israel to at this moment has it, whether it will continue to have it, if in fact the Knesset can overrule all acts of uh, the Supreme Court by a simple majority, remains a question. Look, if you want to do it by a two-thirds majority, a supermajority of some kind, or if you want to limit the overruling to political cases or economic cases, but not core civil liberties, human rights, constitutional cases, of course, Israel has never written constitution, but it has a constitution. The Constitution is the history of Israel, its basic laws. It may include references to the Declaration of Independence, which talks about a Jewish and democratic state with equal rights for all of its citizens. All of those comprise the Constitution, like in England, the unwritten Constitution. 
And um, my rule is people ask me, does Israel have a constitution? Well, people teach constitutional law, so it must have a constitution. In Britain, people teach constitutional law, so it must have a constitution. So there's a big difference between a constitution um, and a written constitution. Israel's never going to have a written constitution. It's too late in its development. The United States would never have had a written constitution if we waited 40, 50, 60. Israel's about to celebrate its 75th birthday. Before it had a constitution, we would never have been able to agree about um, slavery, about the Civil War, about uh, so many other things, religion. Um, and Israel can't agree about religion, about the status of uh, Arab uh, Israelis, about a range of other issues. So it's going to have to continue to endure with an unwritten constitution. But we have a written constitution. And it's very clear, no bills of attainder, no non-legislative acts by the legislature. And the only time Congress has the right to name individuals is to take them off the list. Congress may, by a vote of two-thirds of each house, remove such disability. So interesting that the only time Congress has the power to name names, it's to remove a disability, not to create one. So, you know, my friends and former colleagues who teach constitutional law will say, oh, Dershowitz is, you know, just making this up as he as he goes along. No, I've maintained these arguments for a long time. I edited the piece on a bill of attainder in the summer of 1963. So that's 60 years ago, if I think correctly. So uh, those views go back a long time, and they haven't changed depending on which party is in power. I wish my friend and colleague John Hardily were alive. I know he would disagree. Um, he would agree with my views and disagree with his colleagues like I do, who use the Constitution to enhance their partisan political views rather than to strengthen the rule of law. So let's see what the letters are this 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 week. There'll be a lot tomorrow, I'm sure, about the uh, referrals to the Congress to, from Congress about about the um, alleged crimes of of Donald Trump. Okay. Would you please comment on Donald Trump's recent plan for dealing with pressures on social companies uh, by federal agencies? Which aspects may be constitutional and other parts that would not be? Thanks. I appreciate your work. Very hard question. I've said this before on the show. I've said it in other media contexts. The relationship between government and social media is the great First Amendment issue of the 21st century, and it's a work in progress. We don't know the answer. Uh, to that, are social media so big and so pervasive that they begin to partake of common carriers, <coughs> excuse me, which can have some limitations placed on them by government? I don't think so. Just common carriers, trains and buses, even telegraph companies don't are not involved directly in public, public First Amendment protected speech. So I don't know the answer to that question. I, I can tell you it's a really good question, and I think it will emerge over time. And I would hope that the Supreme Court um, will have the thoroughness and the objectivity to look at this issue without regard to who it benefits today, which side it benefits, but to look at it in an enduring way. Thank you for your work on the Abraham Accords, Professor. I was not aware of your involvement until now. It was a it's a proud moment. Um, some of you, I'm sure, saw the Emir of Qatar on television yesterday um, at the World Cup 
that's who I had uh, dinner with, the Amir Qatar and his brother. And um, one of my jobs was to help persuade them not to oppose the Abraham Accords, which in a public way, which they did not. But wasn't that a game? Wow. I have to tell you, uh, a lot of people were doubtful about whether Qatar should have the World Cup. And, you know, there are all kinds of arguments on both sides. But, boy, this was a terrific World Cup. There were so many good games. I was almost ready to turn off the, the final when Argentina went up ahead, too, and it looked like they may be getting a third. And I do my little statistic on the um, um, uh, Internet, which tells you what the percentages are. And at one point, when there were two nothing, the percentages were 93% that the French would win, and I think 3% or 2%. I'm sorry, 93% that the Argentinians would win, and 2 or 3% the French would win, and the rest for for a tie, well, then, then they tied it up, and then they each scored a goal in the um, overtime, and then it went off on penalty kicks. I don't like the penalty kick way of resolving these things, uh, but you know that's that's the rule, and clearly the the Argentinians always had the advantage on the penalty kick. Everybody knew that and said that, and so I suspect at the end the uh, Argentinian team was playing for. Uh, 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 a tie so that they could win on the penalty kicks. And, and they did, and they deserve it. And uh, the Argentinians are very happy. I'm happy. My dentist is Argentinian. One of my good friends, uh, former chief prosecutor at uh, the criminal International Criminal Court is Argentinian. So I was rooting for the Argentinians. Uh, some members of my family were not. And that's the way it is in America today. So, let's get some more letters. Professor Dirsch, I have seen pretty much of all your podcasts. This one, the one about Trump, along with the gracious tour of your memorabilia, was your best one yet. You perfectly described Trump, his unique clumsy foot-in-the-mouth generalizing characteristic versus true anti-Semitism. You made me the happiest. Uh, seeing how much you enjoyed having been in Israel, the people you met, the places you visited, the discussions you engaged in, your smiles were heartwarming also. Thanks for the juxtaposition of true anti-Semitism in your letters versus the enigma known as Trump. I got a lot of negatives on that, too, on both sides. But I think Trump is a paradox and an enigma and difficult. And you can't just label him. It's wrong to label him an anti-Semite. It's right to say that some of his followers uh, use his statements to promote their anti-Semitism. But uh, his explanation for some of the things he's done, far more complex, far more personal. I finally heard your podcast on Brittany Griner today, and you really altered my opinion. On Tuesday, I had blasted Biden's trade as awful. After listening to your podcast, I feel compelled to thank you for your words. Keep up the good work. I still don't like Biden. But, you know, it really, really makes me feel good to know that I can actually have an impact on having people change their minds. That's not my goal. My goal is to provide information, to provide ways of thinking about things and analysis. But if I can persuade somebody that um, that it was the right thing, by the way, I, I you know, I have my doubts about it, too. Uh, it was the right thing on balance from the heart, from the mind. You know, what will it cost? Will other people be held hostage? Will this guy who was let out 
continue to do terrible things uh, in terms of the arm trade. It's a very complicated issue, but my heart prevailed over my brain. And, and I said I wasn't supportive of that. Um, the federal government just released another batch of statements relating to the assassination of John Kennedy. Did you buy the conclusion of the Warren Commission or do you think an actual conspiracy was involved? Well, I have a story. I have a story about everything. But I have a story about that, which is really interesting. I was a law clerk to Justice Arthur Goldberg when Kennedy was assassinated. I was the one who brought the news to the justices in conference that the president had been shot. And then a number of the justices came to my office, my little tiny cubicle, because I had a television, the only one in the Supreme Court, because I was a baseball fan. I just watched the World Series in October. and This was November. And... So I was very involved in, in that. And then I was offered a job uh, to serve as a, you know, a lawyer on the Warren Commission. I think most of the clerks were. And Justice Goldberg told me not to take it. He said, the Warren Commission is going to find that it was no conspiracy. He didn't believe it was a conspiracy, but he knew they were going to find there was no conspiracy because Warren wanted to make sure that this was not a cause of war with the Soviet Union. So the conclusions were predetermined, but that doesn't mean they weren't right. And so in the end, I think the conclusions were right, although I think the process was deeply, deeply flawed. Okay, one more. Um, what is reasonable gun control? Explain. Reasonable gun control is checking out people before you give them the ability to buy guns, having a period of time pass, uh, holding uh, people responsible if they allow young children to have access to guns that end up killing people, it, it's, it's an attempt to try to balance. And, and, and the Second Amendment talks about a well-regulated militia, well-regulated. That seems to me to be an invitation for some degree of, of gun control. So I don't think it's a contradiction in terms to say that you can support the Second Amendment right to bear arms and at the same time support reasonable gun control. I'm sure we'll talk about this more. See you all tomorrow.